In episode 15 of the Well-Led Schools podcast, I'm joined by stock advisor and financial well-being expert, John Moses. In this episode, we'll chat about financial well-being, limiting beliefs around money, the biggest mistakes people are making when it comes to their finances, and tips to help you feel more in control of your financial well-being. Stay tuned. Welcome to Well-Led Schools with Adrienne Hornby. On this podcast, we talk about all things staff well-being, school culture, and leadership. Join me for incredible and rich conversations with a range of experts who will give you tips, tricks, and inspiration to best support the well-being of the staff in your school and yourself. I'm your host, Adrienne Hornby, a health and wellbeing consultant and former school leader. I partner with schools across Australia to tailor and embed staff wellbeing action plans aimed at addressing staff burnout and building positive working environments. Welcome back to another episode of the Well-Led Schools podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by stock advisor and financial well-being expert, John Moses, and we're diving into the second dimension of well-being of this series, financial well-being. Now, really quickly, financial well-being refers to whether our money choices provide us with security and freedom of choice and encompasses all aspects of well-being pertaining to finances, including knowledge and skills of financial planning and managing our expenses. What makes John so impressive is not just his knowledge about finances, but also his long-term experience as a lifeline counsellor as well making him an all-rounder and the perfect guest to discuss financial well-being. A large majority of us weren't taught how to be smart with money in school or by our parents. So many of us might have reached adulthood feeling unprepared for financial responsibility. It's very common for people to feel stress around managing their finances And that stress is only made worse by the feeling of powerlessness that comes with not having the skills or know-how to change our financial situation. What's worse is that many people feel a sort of shame around money talk, so they're less likely to seek support from people close to them. When we don't feel financially secure or have a financial plan for our future, It can also create stress that goes on to affect other aspects of our well-being, from the mental to physical and to social, for example. But it can also extend to the other dimensions of our well-being too. A standout quality of our guest today is that he supports his clients through a holistic approach to financial well-being. He really is your friendly neighborhood stock advisor that will not only help you to make the right financial moves, but can also help you uncover some of those limiting beliefs and behaviors that could be holding you back from living your richest life. So without further ado, let's dive right in. This episode is brought to you by our signature Well-Led Schools Partnerships 
a 12-month program that brings leaders and staff together to create a shared vision for their school and empowers them to create an action plan that leads to needle-moving changes in school culture and morale. Doors to our partnerships open only once per term. Stay updated on program openings and sign up for the waitlist at adriannehornby.com.au forward slash school hyphen partnerships. Thank you so much, John, for joining me for a chat today on Well-Led Schools. Thank you so much for having me. I feel very privileged. <laughs> it's always great to have a chat. Welcome to the podcast world, by the way. Congratulations. Oh, I know. It's really exciting and I'm very much looking forward to the journey that that comes with it. I'm excited as well. <laughs> All right, so I thought I'd get started with asking you the same question that I ask everyone who comes on the show. What is one thing that you like to do to look after or support your health and well-being, seeing as that we're talking all about supporting the well-being of others? Yes, um, for me, I've done this for maybe three or four years now, but it's probably my biggest non-negotiable each day, which is a morning routine. Um, every morning I make sure I've got enough time to do it and it's pretty simple. I just wake up and have a huge glass of water with lemon and salt. I then have a bulletproof coffee on the floor with Selene and Kubi, my partner and my dog. Uh, and more recently, my son, Lumi. Yay. And then, <laughs> He's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly is. <laughs> and then we hit the beach with Kubi um, and then I get a quick sweat on and then I do whatever I need to do for that day. But in that time, my phone's on airplane mode, so there's no, I don't look at any work emails, I don't get any texts or any Skype messages or anything like that. It's just purely my time for me. Um, and I always find that when I do start whatever it is I'm doing that day, I just feel so much more grounded and clear and ready to tackle it as opposed to waking up and checking a work email and then thinking about that for the whole morning. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in a modern day world now, and this is to any teachers and leaders listening will feel the same way. It's that everything is so busy and so crowded that any of those small pockets of time where we're just with ourselves and connecting with our loved ones is, is really where all of the magic happens. And we, we really don't get it as much as we once would have, you mm -hmm. know, before the dawn of worrying about all of the things, you know, we'll be talking about that today, like finances and work and and um, bills, that, that that time in the morning is so sacred. Yes. And it is extremely rare. Like your, your mind's always going to take you to whatever it is that you're focusing on at the time. So to have those moments of clarity, they are few and far, be, far, far between. Very, very hard to get there, but it's nice when you do. Yeah. And how do you find that that morning routine benefits then the rest of your day? If I do my morning routine, I can go in, look at my to-do list and it, it just, to me, feels like then it's a process of working through the to-do list. If I don't do that, when I look at the sheet of paper, I just instantly get this overwhelming feeling of I've got too much on today. I don't know where to start. I might start a little bit of um, to-do number one and then a little bit of number 10 and a little bit of seven, a little bit of six and nothing gets done. Mm. It's almost like there's a Rubik's Cube in my brain. And when I do my morning routine, the Rubik's Cube gets all put into place so the blues and the yellows and the greens are all together. And so I can then go and tackle the puzzles. But when I don't, it's all jumbled and I just don't know. I'm, I just don't know where to start or where to begin or when yeah, to stop. 
I feel you. And I run some trainings and also my one-on-one coaching with, with teachers and just clients in general. And we talk about the power of having some kind of routine because too often, and this isn't just teachers, this is in any workplace and even, you know, you and I working from home is that if you don't have that time to connect with yourself in the morning and tune into how you're feeling, doing a bit of a pulse check and just kind of get started with your day. You really are all over the place. And I used to see it in schools. Teachers would just roll in, you know, just in the nick of time before they started their day. And oftentimes you could see it replicated in the the way that their day planned out or their connections with others that they weren't fully I guess, connected to themselves and they're in that present moment. So Mm. those kind of quiet mornings are so powerful. And I too adopted them on my health and wellbeing journey as well. I used to be a a night owl and now I really embrace the mornings just to get that that free time. And you'll probably feel it more so now you're a parent. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. That morning routine has changed a little bit since then. So it used to be very slow and very um, you know, it was very structured, whereas now you sort of take what you can get. And instead of doing all of those activities together, my partner and I have um, basically given each other one morning on, one morning off with baby and, and dog duties. So that works really well. We, we don't do it every single day where we get, you know, that time to ourselves, but every other day we have time that's just purely for us and we can choose what we want to do with it. Oh, I love it. It's such a luxury, but we need to prioritize it. The other thing before we moved on, actually talking about what we were going to cover in the episode, uh, for those listening who are going, what is a bulletproof coffee? <laughs> Very quickly. Like, I know what that is because you've made them for me a number of times and we embrace them in our house. But for anybody tuning in going, huh? You want to quickly explain it? A bulletproof coffee is the best thing ever. <laughs> It Good is. Explanation. It, it comes with a warning, though. So I'll tell you what it is first, and then the warning. It bulletproof coffee is basically a long black with added butter and coconut oil included into it. We also put in some collagen protein in there, so there's some protein in the drink. It's super creamy, super fluffy because you put it in the blender. Once you once you put it all together, you blend it up. And it's this really frothy, creamy drink. It tastes really, really good. Um, And when you haven't had one for a long time, it's kind of like having a coffee times three. So there's something science behind the fats um, in the coffee that slow down the caffeine intake. And even though you're slowing down the intake, it actually feels like you're getting more caffeine over a longer period. So the warning that it comes with (laughs) is that... If uh, you haven't had one before and potentially you might put a little bit too much butter in there, it can lead to some stomach upsets for the first couple. <laughs> yes, you've got to work your way up. Yes, <laughs> to but trust the me, right amount. they must be tried. It's so delicious. We we will opt for our coffee at home over a coffee out most days. Like we mm. just love our coffee so much. I agree. You guys do make a good bulletproof. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So let's dive into today's episode. So I'd like for you to tell the audience, sorry, I'd like for you to tell the audience a little bit about what you do, your journey, and how you came to support clients with their finances and their financial well-being. Cool. I'll give you the whole story. Um, <laughs> so my, I'm the owner of JM Investments. I'm a full service stockbroking firm. Um, put simply, I help people invest in the stock market. And the way that I put my spin on it, I like to give um, people a stress-free investing plan that is unique to their risk tolerance and also their ethical profiling so that it can feel good about what they're doing. Um, my story as to how I got into it 
there's probably three really big um, events that happened in my life that that led me to where I am now. The, the first one being that my dad, he was always a really great mentor for a lot of things, um, but particularly for finances. And the way that he taught us kids was a, a really, really gentle, um, almost like subliminal way that he taught us things. So it was never a, you have to do this or, you know, it wasn't forceful in any way. Like quite often he would actually teach us something about money and finances or business. Um, and then we would obviously not listen because we were kids. Um, <laughs> we, we would go away and make the mistakes and then we'd come back and because we had that knowledge there, we knew what to do next. So he was the first person that I ever heard talk about an emergency fund. Um, and to this day, he's still a really big mentor for me in my current business. So I always go to him for advice. So that was like a, the first, the first, um, the first notch that got me somewhat thinking down the finance path. Mm. The second was in my teenage years. I had actually decided that I was going to be a chiropractor, and I was so set on it. Um, I'd had I didn't um, know that. Didn't you? <laughs> no. Hmm. I was so. <laughs> so determined like I'd already decided I'd had my university picked out I'd done work experience with chiropractors it was it was done and dusted um and the reason was that I had been a patient from as a chiropractor from about the age of 12 or 13 and I'd had some amazing results like I'd, I'd my asthma cleared up I used to get nosebleeds they went away um a, a whole raft of things happened the minute that I started going to a chiropractor and I just thought how cool is this like you can you can give people these great health results and get paid for it. Mm. And so, yeah, I think I was about 13 or 14. I decided I was going to be a chiropractor. And uh, in my later years at school, I chose all the sciences. So I'd done physics, chemistry, and biology because that's what I needed to do to get into chiropractic. But when I was about 16 or 17 years old, um, a, f- uh, a family friend of ours ran a talk and he actually introduced us to the stock market. And so from that, I started looking into it and it honestly just lit this fire inside of me. Um, to this day, I still can't really, I don't really know what it was that made me resonate with it so much, but it literally just lit something inside of me and I was obsessed. <laughs> I, I was reading books, I was doing courses, I was watching videos. I was just so obsessed with it that when it when I did graduate and it was time to head to uni, I was on this huge seesaw about what am I going to do? Because I really love this stock market thing and I could potentially go down that path and have a career down there. But I also really love the Cairo thing. And so I was I was back and forth and it was a bit of a confusing time. Um, and chiropractic being like a six-year university degree, I didn't really want to get into any either of them and then switch. So I actually didn't go to uni at all and I went backpacking to try and <laughs> sort, sort my mind out. Anyway, somewhere in the depths of South America, I obviously decided that business was where I wanted to go. I wanted to do something with with the stock market and with trading. So I switched to a degree in commerce and economics and that was it. I was obsessed with it. As At uni, I did maybe 10% of the uni work and then the rest of the time I was just doing an external stock market education. So It's always the way, isn't it? And that's sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so the sad. education we can get. Um, I know. Tertiary field really is like light years behind what's actually happening. I would love to tell you something that I learned at uni <laughs> that I use today, but I just don't know if I could. <laughs> but you learn lots of things in uni. And I think uh, I'm not sure your experience at uni, but I was very broke at uni. 
And so that in itself was part of my money journey and my money lessons as well, because I had to learn how to manage money when you don't have a lot of it. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, from first meeting you, just coming out of uni, I, um, you know, I remember at the time my husband, Matt, he was my husband then, saying how great you were with money and how financially stable you were. And that was so weird for somebody in their early 20s. (laughs) And obviously, um, you know, attributed to all of that extra work that you did. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, definitely. It was, yeah, again, I don't know if it was a healthy obsession, but I was obsessed with it. So it was something that I really got into. Um, Pretty good obsession. I was obsessed with very different things at that age. (laughs) And then the third thing that really shaped where I am today and the flair that I put on my business and to my clients and just in my life in generally was when I finished university. Um, It was 2013. I'd just graduated and I'd actually landed my dream job out of uni. So I was so stoked. Things were looking really good. Um, It was with a trading firm in Melbourne and it couldn't have been more perfect. Like it was exactly what I wanted out of uni um, at that time of my life. But about three days before I was due to start, I lost my best friend, one of my best friends, to suicide. Um, and within, not even within a month later, um, we lost another friend in the exact same manner. So he took his own, sadly took his own life. So this was just like such a huge oh, explosion in my world. Like I had, I'd never really experienced anything even minutely close to this. We're from a really small town and the entire town was just leveled. It was dead quiet. There was this eerie feeling of just this unknown, unexperienced, like sadness in the town. And uh, yeah, it was just such as one of those moments in life that you just, it's imprinted in your brain. You remember every little detail of it. And um, it was just such a huge turning point for me, particularly now that I look back on it from a bit further on. Mm. So the reason that that's a pivotal part in our conversation today is that when I did finally start work, I put it off for a few, um, I think a month or two. I started a couple of months later because I just needed a bit of time off. I started work and for a number of years, I really, really struggled with the loss of my friend. Um, I was experiencing little doubts of anxiety. Uh, I couldn't really sleep that well. I was having nightmares And so my health really suffered as a consequence of the trauma that we'd experienced. And I know it wasn't just me. It was was so many people in our little town. So a couple of years after this all happened, I, um, oddly enough, jumped out of a plane. And in the free free fall, I was just sitting there looking at this beautiful view. And it was almost like it it flew up my nose into my brain. I was just like, I need to do something about (laughs) this. This is... I need to help prevent this from happening to others. And so I finished the skydive and then that week later I signed up to be a lifeline counsellor. And I've mentioned a few times now that my obsession was in the stock market. Well, that obsession got a best friend and that obsession was (laughs) health, psychology and wellbeing. So I was on the phones with Lifeline for uh, this will be my seventh year since, um, since I was there. I started in 2016 and it really added another level of obsession for me and it was yeah really around health um, and well-being as you would know because we quite Mm. often bounced ideas of health back and forward to each other Mm. yeah Yeah, so that was that was the same time I started Lifeline and a few months later I switched jobs so I went from 
working my way up the corporate ladder. I switched jobs. I moved to the Gold Coast and I became a stock advisor um, with a bit more focus of helping others. Yeah, that contribution side of things. Exactly. Yeah, a a couple of things that really stand out from your story for me around that this almost like a financial literacy that you have is around that role modeling. That was the first thing that came about from from your dad Mm. and really having, you know, him sort of translating that messaging to you as kids and emphasizing that from a young age. And this is something that not everybody gets to experience in their lifetime. I certainly didn't. So it almost like started to shape you from a young age. But I could imagine that there are a number of people who had that, but, you know, it's it still didn't end up coming to fruition in their life that they were particularly uh, financially safe or felt like they were financially literate. But that was kind of one thing that stood out. And then interestingly, that whole passion and the obsession around finances and learning about stockbroking and, and the market was really you putting your passion into developing the skills and the knowledge that you need. And this is something I say a lot when it comes to health and well-being is most of the time across the various dimensions of our well-being, it's about developing skills and knowledge. Sometimes things are innately in us or are role modeled into us, but oftentimes we have to go away and learn what it takes to become totally satisfied in that area. Mm. And this is something that oftentimes people won't take into account and think, oh, I'm just not very good at that. Well, you need to go away and learn how to do that. So uh, yeah, that was something that stood out to me as as you were talking as you were talking there. And of course, then I loved how you wrapped it up there with that focus on contribution. And what better way to learn how to do something and have it really sink in than to give away a skill and to teach others how to do it? And mm. I think what it what it sort of infuses into what you do to me sounds like this is an integrity, um, and you know, that is what's really important when it comes to finding someone to work with to support your financial well-being uh, is to have trust and, yes. and, and you know, as you were describing in what you did, it's, it's supporting people to be able to find what means something to them in terms of investing and, and something that they feel safe in doing. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think for a long time I put the lifeline pillar and the, the work pillar in different buckets that were separate um but as you know and as we're going to discuss today they are really really intertwined like financial mm-hmm. health is such a huge component of your overall health and well-being and the other thing that you mentioned just then was um you're talking about people going away to learn a skill in finance and if you if any of your listeners follow me on instagram they'll know that i always talk about compound interest and compound interest is the phenomenon of why investing and saving work so well. And it's because you earn interest on your money. And if you give it enough time, the interest on your money starts earning interest. And then that interest starts earning interest and that interest starts earning interest. And initially, if you looked at it on a graph, you your journey begins and you're investing or you're saving or your new skill or your health or your fitness, whatever it is, it starts off very similar to where you were anyway. It doesn't look like there's a lot happening. But as time goes on and you continually do these little things step by step, that graph begins to curve up. And if you leave it more time, then that curve gets steeper and steeper and steeper until it's exponentially up. And that applies to every area of our life. I talk about it all the time in to do with 
finances and investing, but it actually translates to everything in our life when we want to learn something. It's not about just taking a path, deciding that we're going to do it and we get there. It's about taking little tiny steps a long way, like our morning routine, right? You can do that once and it's not going to change your life. But if you do it every single morning, mm-hmm. then that compound interest adds up to your health. And over time, you see those exponential results. I hope that came out clearly. <laughs> it did. It certainly did. And as you were talking, it had me thinking about, uh, you know, when we get ourselves into financial hardship or into any debt, slowly and slowly (laughs) that we end up slightly more worse off if we're not addressing it or if we're ignoring the problem as well. That Um, curve goes both ways. Yeah, exactly. And I think too often people can just ignore problems or, you know, seek loan after loan and Band-Aid after Band-Aid. And that's not Mm. necessarily something we'll be be getting into today. But when I think about some of the clients I've worked with who have a lot of financial stress, those are the kind of things that they talk about. And and we'll get into talking about that soon because I know that you would have um, experienced people who either in your personal life through Lifeline and now uh, in, in the business who who do make mistakes or who have um, haven't made the best choices in their past, and that's there that therefore beginning to impact how they're feeling today. Yes, definitely. All right. And, so and to I'll, flip it on to you before your next question. But on that, what what do you think would be the biggest factor in financial well-being after what we've just spoken about? The biggest factor. Yeah, into into financial success or financial well-being. Like, what's the overarching, the biggest? lever in that well for me i i think it's financial security and having autonomy um sort of what i was getting at (laughs) is that most people when you say you know finances and and financial health and things like that they think of numbers and maths Mm -hmm. but everything we've spoken about today has been around psychology and psychology is just such a huge part of our finances It's, it's a huge part of everything that we do but um like you would deal with clients with their limiting beliefs and the stories that they've inherited along the way in their life's journey that same thing happens with their finances we have these invisible scripts and these invisible money stories that drive every decision that we make and like the one that i got from my dad that has some positive things to a story they can go both ways um but like i said they're invisible so a lot of the time we don't know that that they're there we've just inherited they come from our parents our grandparents society our friends and we pick up these invisible scripts and they drive so much of what happens in our life that's so true. And, you know, as you said, that's my face cringed because I thought, yep, I have so many storylines myself when it comes to money and finances. Mm. And, um, you know, it may be, and you'll probably will say, yep, that's it. Many people will deflect and go, oh, it's numbers and planning because it's not something that they want to address or yep. um, are willing to shine a light on just yet yes yeah Mm. and and they are incredible like it's not something that you just uncover your stories and then we're all good they continually Mm. come up you're continually pulling them up and I think just recently for me like starting a new business and having a baby has really (laughs) shown a light on some ones that I didn't know were there or or maybe got some that were really minor but have really like brought them into the light and magnified them so it's really cool thing to know about and to look for because once you become aware of something, then you can start to take action on on rewriting it or at least um, hacking it. There's a few hacks that you can do. Like if someone's really, really bad at overanalyzing a, a financial decision, me, 
if you're sitting there for hours, like looking back and forth, trying to find the best deal and the cheapest deal or whatever it is, then there's certain hacks that you can do to get around those those limiting money stories. Um, and like I said, they can go both ways. So some are good, some are bad, and actually some are both. Um, but I think we could probably do a whole yeah. podcast on that topic. <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting because it's probably around people's coping strategies too when it comes to stress. And yeah, mm. that's that's one we could even unpack as you sort of talk through what people do. And I can relate that to some of the adaptive or maladaptive coping strategies when it comes to, um, yeah, how people deal with a challenging time. Yeah. Sometimes a money story doesn't do anything until we're in that stressful situation. Oh, yeah. And that's where we see those loops where everything's going really good and on track and then something traumatic happens in your life and you self-sabotage and you you really turn that whole shit back around and start again. Yeah, and that's why it's really important for us to constantly do a bit of a pulse check on on how we're feeling across the different dimensions of our well-being so we can work out where is the trigger coming from. And that's what we're about to sort of transition into now anyway is is talking about uh, our financial well-being and and those different dimensions. So for those of you who haven't caught uh, the previous episode on uh, the eight dimensions of our well-being. Our overall well-being is a complex combination of up to eight different codependent areas. So this includes our physical, emotional, occupational, social, spiritual, intellectual, environmental, and of course, financial well-being. And as I said before, they're codependent. So just as you were beautifully putting there, John, when one area is we're tending to it less or we're less satisfied with it, it can cause another area of our well-being to come down. So uh, I, I did a really big deep dive into these different dimensions of well-being in a recent self-study I did through my Masters of Education. And I actually found out that my uh, limited uh, satisfaction with my financial well-being was in fact beginning to influence things like my physical well-being and my emotional well-being and then of course um those social areas too because I was beginning to pull away from people um mm. because I was you know coming into a business as you were talking about before and sort of having to uh really your income doesn't come from the government anymore it comes from your ability to um sort of market yourself and 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 run the business side of things so I was finding mm. that quite stressful um so it's really important for us as I said to do a little bit of a pulse check there but John I'm interested to hear how you would describe somebody who has a really strong or healthy sense of financial well-being from your experience mm, that's a really great question I think overarching the entire person would be um, an overall vision, like goals and values and a vision that sits at the top of their entire life and it, all of their decisions get made from that. So they know, uh, to put it into layman terms, they know where they want to go and they're, they've got a plan to get there. So that overall... Got a vision. <laughs> they've got a vision. Um, there's four main pillars of personal finance. There's earning spending, saving and investing. And all four of those are a skill that can be improved upon. So when I, I vision envision this person, they are competent in all four of those areas and they're constantly upskilling them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's an, a very common belief that to be successful and be good with money, you have to be frugal. But I, I, I think that couldn't be further from the truth. So these this person is neither frugal and they're not careless as well. They're just conscious with their money. 
they're really clear on the things that they love in life. Um, we mentioned coffee before, like how good is a bulletproof coffee in this in the morning? How would you feel if you and I had did some coaching? I told you you can save money if you get some blend 43 and you just have an instant coffee in the morning instead. <laughs> All right. So, so there's this belief that we have to say no to things. We have to turn things down to to progress in financially, but it's not true. I think this person understands exactly what it is that they love and what lights them up and they turn those things up. They actually get the best coffee and the best coffee machine. Um, if food's their big thing, then they go to the nice restaurants and they shop at the organic markets and all these sorts of things. But there's other things that maybe they don't get as much enjoyment out of like shoes or watches and they turn those right down. So they know what it is that lights them up and they really funnel those things. Um, the- almost when you're talking, what comes to mind for me is what people value. And mm. this is something when I start working with a school and with a client too, is that's one of the first things that we'll assess alongside those dimensions of their well-being is what they actually value. And when mm. you, not everybody has recognized that. And so as you were talking there, I thought people then of course go out and just spend their money on random things that don't actually light them up. But once they've actually identified what really means something to them, what they value, then they're able to make those more conscious and present decisions. Yeah, that's right. I think what I see commonly is just that people, um, again, if anyone follows my Instagram, go back and find the four core money beliefs because we all sit in one of those and it can explain a lot of what Adrian's just said there. But what I find is a lot of people aren't living their rich life. They're living the rich life that we're seeing from friends and from family and on Instagram and on social media. And we think that that's how we live a rich life. And so we're trying to live someone else's rich life instead of living our own. Mm. Mm. All right. So alongside um, sort of recognising what really lights them up and and um, therefore where to spend their money or otherwise, what are some other, I guess, signs of somebody who would have a really strong sense of financial wellbeing? You were talking about saving and investing there. Um, <laughs> is that around, um, of course, working out how much you can actually plausibly save once you've sort of identified um, where to spend your money or otherwise. And then it, what are some options in terms of investing? Okay. Um, so the reason that they're not stressed is because they do have some sort of a plan and everyone's plan is completely unique to them. You have to work out what works for you. But in our little avatar that we're doing now, yeah, he's got a plan. Um, I think the question was around how does he know how much? Yes. Well, as someone so, so a basic thing that i work with and a lot of people work with it's, it's pretty common across the financial industry but it's to put things into these rough buckets so i'm personally not a budget man but i do like to have a rough guide of what's happening um, and so a common one is that 50 to 60 percent of your take-home income is your living expenses so it's rent food um, and bills and things like that and then 20 percent of your take-home income is your fun money. So you can do whatever you like with it. It goes to going out for dinner, going to the movies, massages, that sort of thing. And then you invest 10% and you in, in save 10%. So again, when I talk about the guy who's financially, um, sorry, financial, who's got a strong sense of financial well-being, he doesn't have stress around money because he knows roughly where things are going. It's not 
he doesn't have to constantly think about it because he's set these things up. It's almost like it's automatic in your brain. You don't need to worry. You don't need to constantly be looking at bills and running spreadsheets because you know roughly what everything is going towards. Yeah, you've got like processes and systems in place that you can fall back on. Yeah, and again, that's another common um, belief that's wrong is that you have to be constantly obsessed with money to do well with it. I think the opposite is very much true. Um, I think if you can sit down for an hour a month or an hour every other month, you can do exceptionally well with your money. Mm. It's true. And these are just small little things that any any of our listeners can can pick up and roll with. But also I like some of these tips in order for us to use and utilise in a conversation as leaders with any of our staff who might be expressing to us that they have any financial concerns. And that doesn't mean that you have to provide financial advice, but just asking questions around whether they have a plan for, you know, what they're doing around their earnings, spending, saving and investing. And if any of the Mm. answers are no, then it's like maybe you need to seek the support of somebody who can help you in those areas. Yeah. I mean, have you heard of lifestyle creep before? No. Lifestyle creep, again, head to my Instagram and you'll find... (laughs) find a nice little infographic on it but it's and we've probably all experienced let me know if you have but basically it is your living expenses creeping along with your salary so as you progress down your career path and you get a promotion and a better job and or you start your own business and you start to earn more and more and more uh, you find that your take-home pay keeps growing but what's left behind doesn't and a part of that is just this, which is what's called lifestyle creep. It's all these little nice to have things that we start adding in. We get a promotion, so we get a nicer apartment and we might upgrade the car and we get some nicer clothes. We shop a little bit nicer. We go out a little bit more. And it's just that lifestyle creep that follows our salary. Now, in, before, when I mentioned the percentages, you still get to enjoy your uh, your salary increases and your promotions because if 20% is a splurge, then that grows with your salary. Um, but you're just not blowing the whole promotion on these little things. And again, it's one of those really invisible, subtle things that you don't often know is happening. It's just you get to the end of the month and you're thinking, I don't have a lot left over still. Yeah, it's 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 building a constant state of self-awareness mm. to be able to recognise and diagnose where you might be struggling and, and then what you can potentially do to improve things. Mm, I love exactly. that. Yeah. So what do you think are some common mistakes that people make when it comes to finances? I think the biggest one, and there's always a lot of crossover with with health, So, but I think the biggest one is that we just don't talk about money. It's, mm. it's almost taboo in society to not talk about our money, it's exactly mm. like our emotions. You know, men don't really sit around the pub and talk about how they're feeling, just like we don't sit around the pub and talk about our money, good and bad. It's just... Mm it's often considered taboo. Mm. Um, And what you see quite often is like couples will get married and then it'll be months, even a year after they're married that they start to talk about their money. And Mm. so it's it's that much of a taboo thing that you can make this huge life decision but still not know each other's financial story that well. And I don't know where that goes away because when we're young, that's not the case. Like when our parents used to give us $4 to go to the pool, (laughs) you would You'd check into the pool and they'd take your, your money and give you your change. And then you'd go up to the counter and you'd say, how much can I have with this, mu- this much money? It'd be like $1.80. And the, the lady would tell us what we could have. So we knew what we could afford. And it was probably 40 red frogs 
a can of coke and i feel it like it was ridiculous thanks inflation but we had no shame in talking about our money because we Mm. we hadn't got to that point yet but somewhere along the line we stop talking about it and we start to hold on to our money problems and our money questions to ourselves because that is just what society's normal thing to do is Mm. um but the problem is ignoring your money problems never makes them go away nearly never so I think that's number one is that it's it's not something to really talk about, even to our closest people a lot of the time. So it's something that I think needs to change. Um, the other thing is that we're just, we live in a society where it's encouraged to spend more than you earn. We've got credit cards. We've got buy now, pay later. Um, like I mentioned before, we're tr- constantly trying to keep up with everyone on Instagram and all of our friends. Our friends get a new ute, so then you want a new ute and so on and so forth. Um so it just means that you're never going to have any savings and investments and you're not going to have an emergency fund. I mentioned emergency fund before. Like one of the best ways to remove anxiety around money is to have an emergency fund because you know that when something pops up unexpectedly, whether you lose your job or that your car breaks down or you get a medical expense, you know that you can cover it and you're not constantly have this worry in your mind of like, oh, God, what could happen next? I can't afford it. Um, we mentioned lifestyle creep earlier as well. And that's, that's another part of that. It's just like, we're constantly pushing a limit. And so we don't get savings and we don't get investments and we don't get our emergency fund. There are three key things to financial health. Um, and then obviously the next one that leads from those things of spending more than you can earn is that we take on debt. And yeah, as I mentioned, we don't live in a healthy environment. We're encouraged to get into these things. Mm. Our banks want us to get into debt. These buy now, pay later companies want us to get into debt. Yeah. And to carry it across to a health analogy, it's like going to the gym and for every one barbell, there's 10 donuts and cakes and lollies. And so there's just there's just so much temptation out there um, to do the wrong thing. Yeah, and then we end up in that financial strife. Mm, Definitely. So Gallup Research has actually highlighted financial well-being as one of the top five statistically significant influences on our overall levels of well-being or thriving. So, you know, when I was talking about those eight dimensions, Gallup has just come out in 2021 and said that, you know, there's there's five. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they describe financial well-being as managing your money well. And I think, you know, you've described perfectly how we can begin to do that. But as a stock advisor, how do you support clients to manage their money well and the work that you do with them? Well, the first thing is that a lot of people that come to me have have battled through these issues so that a lot of them have actually broken through a lot of the, the issues there but if they haven't we we shine a light on it so the biggest thing in re- rewriting a money script is for someone to look at it and you would know as a coach how much better that is to have someone external to look mm. at your situation it's just sometimes it's gleamingly obvious to the coach but not to the person so we look at that overall um, financial situation, but in my work, a lot of what I do is just in that investment space. So these people have have done well in their in their career or their business, and they've got to a point where they do have residual money, and they'd like to make some smart choices um, with that in the stock market or in in investing in general. Um, so that is where I come in and help people with their investments, um, but yeah, we look at that that entire journey that we spoke about yeah, before. That big picture. 
that big is, picture yeah yeah which is so important because again if you if we go to somebody to support us with our finances no matter what it is um whether we're investing in property or in the stock market or financial advisors sometimes i find from speaking with people is that though there are some people who will work with us who will almost take the reins and will still continue to do things that we don't quite understand. Mm. Um, and I love your approach to unpacking uh, the the script and what we're saying to ourselves, those limiting beliefs, um, as well as the, I guess, the, the part of the journey where things have been positive too, so we can build that awareness. Mm. But I think that that's really important so that we can develop an understanding of ourselves and, again, not just kind of off- you know, offload outsourcing is 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 a great thing to do, but when it comes to our finances, um, it it might not always be the way to approach things. Yeah, the biggest thing that I dive into in in what I do with clients, and the, normally the first thing as well is to just dive into their why. Like, why do they want to? Why have they contacted me? Why do they want to invest? Mm-hmm. And we 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 continue to dive down. Why why why? Why do you need this? Why do you want? So we can get a really clear picture of what is making them take these actions, what they want out of it. And for me, I think one of the biggest things that I get out of that that deep dive is around their intention and whether it suits their current lifestyle. Mm. Because a lot of people, they hate their job or they're unsatisfied at their job um, and so they want to put all this money away into investments so that they can have a nice retirement. And I just think that's so wrong. We're, we're, we're going to sit in a job that we don't like for 30 odd years and then hope that when we're 60 we can enjoy the fruits of our labor so it's really important to me to understand the why and as you mentioned there's eight pillars of health and i i don't just focus on on the financial side of things i like to look at everything holistically because i think that's at the end of the day what we're really really trying to do is is um look after ourselves and our family and Mm. that's the the best way to do that is not to be living in the future yeah support the whole person Mm, definitely so research actually is outlining that that those who are struggling or suffering with their financial well-being, it's often the single strongest predictor of daily worry or stress for people with jobs. And when I'm running a staff well-being workshop and where I'm supporting staff to reflect on, you know, the five top areas or dimensions of well-being and see whether they're satisfied or whether they're thriving or whether they're less satisfied um, with those areas, what we actually see, and this is what the research out of Gallup is saying, is that the more areas we've got that are thriving, the less likely we are to feel burnt out. But what I am seeing is a number of staff will report that their financial well-being is lower on the satisfaction scale. And mm. I get that when I'm roaming around the room and I'm looking. Um, I obviously don't take away their reflection activities, but I'm seeing that a lot. And it gets me thinking about, you know, those who are leading in our schools, leading these staff who are suffering from financial stress that in many ways might be a hidden stress. And as you said, because we're not talking about it and people won't necessarily bring it up when they're they're mentioning that uh, they're feeling really stressed at work, they, they might in many, in oftentimes sort of offload the blame in other areas because that's something they either don't recognize or or they don't want to talk about. Mm. And 
you know, many leaders might feel as though their staff's finances are out of their realm or, or control, but it is really important to be mindful that many staff may be suffering from that financial stress and it's ultimately affecting their health and in and oftentimes their performance at work. Mm. So for anyone who's listening who might be suffering from financial stress um, or who might be leading somebody who might you know, happen to report that they're feeling financially stressed or they might get an inkling. What do you think are some first steps that they can take or suggest that someone takes to feel more in control of their finances or to seek support? Mm, Yeah, good question. I'll just rewind back a little bit to the stats that you mentioned. Mm. Um, Yeah, that's exactly right. One, across all of Western society, money comes up as our top three concerns and worries in our life that's consistently across everyone um when you get to the age 40 that hits number one so it's number one on the list is our financial stress and that's again across everyone it gets to the number one cause of stress from 40 plus so it is a huge issue um i'm not sure whether this is purely related to teachers as well this podcast but i know that you do a lot of work in the education space Mm. and just to counter that as well it's not you know, quite often a money, a hidden money script is that your particular job doesn't allow you to have financial freedom. Oh, yeah. That, that is a story in, with teachers. That is a story and it is purely that. It is just a story. If you look at um, the stats around millionaires across the globe, they've, they've researched thousands and thousands of million millionaires and how they got there. And I think number three or four on the list is teachers. Mm. And then they're not earning huge money. They're earning you know, somewhere around that 100K mark. Um, but when they dove into- That's after 10 years. But when they enter, it's much lower. Though, much lower, yeah. Yeah. But in this in this research where they looked at the millionaires, they were earning an average of $100,000 as a teacher and they were able to, to, to crack the millionaire status and that's millionaire of assets and savings. And every single one of them had done it just purely by saving and investing. And there was no, oh, there was no generational wealth. They didn't get money from their family. They started from nothing. They were a teacher and they became a millionaire and that they were high up on the list. I think they even beat lawyers and solicitors. So mm. it's I just wanted to highlight that first because it is a big story that um, you do find. Well, um, I feel very smart because in my research I'd found actually that in a meta-analysis across 63 countries, it actually found that freedom of choice or autonomy was a strong predictor of well-being rather than sheer wealth. Mm. So it's people's ability to be able to control what they do with their money. Um, and have the freedom to decide how they invest it or how they save over having a lot of money. So, you know, not everybody is great with the money that they make, Mm. uh, but if you can learn how to be smart with the money, uh, no matter whether it's, you know, a really (laughs) uh, sort of entry-level position um, or entry-level role and you're not even on minimal wage right through to earning a lot of money, it doesn't always mean that you're going to have all of the assets and you're not just going to be in more and more debt. Uh, I found that very interesting. It's definitely right. And I think it comes down to what we're what we're really chasing. I said it before backwards, but we're chasing freedom. That's what we're after. We, we don't just, just want money. We want freedom. We want more time and we want more um, space to be able to do the things that we want yeah. to do. So it's freedom. Yeah. So back to your question. You yes, said sorry. what are the common causes of financial stress? Mm. What do you what do you think is the biggest, Adri? I would think debt. Yes, debt. Debt is the biggest. It is mm. the biggest form of stress. Um, if we talked about how money, talking about m- 
money is taboo in society. Talking about debt is even more times up by 10. People yeah. Just, it's, it comes with a lot of um, grief and shame and so people don't talk about it. But debt is the biggest thing that will hold you back mm-hmm. and it's so easy to get into. It's just one of those things that like it's almost encouraging society to get into it and all of a sudden you're in this hole that you just can't seem to get out and you don't really mm-hmm. feel like it's comfortable to be able to talk about it. So, But debt, it's like running a marathon with flippers and a welding mask you it is it is honestly just such a such a uh, break on on your life um so it's number one debt comes mm. in at number one consistently like by a country mile mm. um the other common ones are not being able to pay your bills and we're seeing that a lot at the moment because with inflation your rent might have jumped 20 percent yeah um, your food's probably Wild. jumped similar all of a sudden you, you fast forward from two years ago, our weekly expenses have gone up massively, huge. Yep. Yeah. And so you might have had a really nice financial plan two years ago, but now you're actually really stressed and tied on money and and just able to juggle the bills. So that's that comes yeah. in, in next. It's definitely prevalent in a lot of the surveys that I run with schools when I'm reading through the comments. People are mentioning the cost of living and inflation and, you know, how therefore we need to be paid more because that's just these added stresses outside of um, outside of the workplace. Yeah, definitely. definitely. I, feel, mm. I feel the pinch as well. And I understand. Yeah, we do in our house as well. Yeah. Yes, and like I mentioned, like one of our um, one of our loves is food, and so we we really like to buy good quality food, as I know you do as well. And it you feel it. It's it's really hard. Um, but again, it's it's what we value, and so we mm. we we make do. We're not going to go on. And buy the the cheap stuff from Costco because it's not what lights us up. Mm, exactly. But that is a big stress because all of a sudden you're just maybe just paying the bills or you're unable to pay the bills, so you're actually going backwards each each month. Mm. Um, and our wages haven't really climbed with it. So mm. um, the other financial stressor that we see is is a job loss or the worry of a job loss. So mm. people. People are quite anxious about losing their job when things aren't looking so good, when COVID hit. Yeah, that was really big. Yeah. All this talk of recession and everyone was in air and there was so much anxiety around whether you can keep your job or not. Yeah. And that that obviously combines with what we just mentioned. So all your cost of living has gone up and your job security has gone down. Yeah, and I want to sort of piggyback onto that because a big thing in education is that we don't have schools full of permanent positions. We have, mm. you know, a certain amount of appointed or resourced permanent positions, but then the rest are contracts. And we really underestimate how stressful it is for a teacher or for an admin person or even a leader to be living on a year-to-year contract, particularly in these times. Mm. It makes it really hard to get home loans, um, to plan ahead, and that's actually a huge predictor of stress in the staff and teachers that I've led. Uh, But also what I'm seeing in the surveys that I'm running with schools is they're looking for permanency. And this isn't always something that we can achieve in a school, but it's something that leaders listening need to be mindful of. Because if, you know, financial stress is is one of the leading stresses, and that's what they're worrying about, um, you know, we have to be, uh, I guess, accommodating isn't the right word, but supportive of the anxiety that comes with that and empathetic to those staff. Mm, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very real, it's a very real um, concern. Like it's, mm. I understand it completely. It's finances are stressful 
it's mm. it's um yeah it's just sort of the, the world that we live in they don't have to be but they can be very very stressful so i understand it mm. all right um, so it, there's yeah, one that- more that i will add in there that's it's you won't see it in the research it's not really something that's like written out but it's just something that i've experienced from a backwards point of view and it's not that people are they, they don't have stress because they don't have it. But what I see is when they do have it, a mountain of stress comes off and that is an emergency fund. I've mentioned it a few times mm. today, but having those funds there ready for an emergency takes a mountain of anxiety off. Mm. A lot of financial pro- professionals will recommend having three months worth of your living expenses in an emergency fund, but that is completely up to the individual. Some people will want more, some people need less, but just having something there to know that you're going to be okay in in the event of X, Y, Z, whatever your brain creates, it just takes a mountain of stress yeah. off. Yeah, we've got ours is called our buffer. Mm. And because we have investment properties, we've got to make sure that we have, yes, the three months of rent. Yes. If there wasn't somebody in there, but it's a, a similar thing for our living expenses. My husband's the buffer king. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So some of those financial stresses then, you know, the second part of my question were what were some first steps that we could take to feel more in control of finances or to seek support? Yep. So steps. Okay. Let's go through it. Well, first, I just want to go to the extreme end of of the spectrum because money and mental health, they are basically a negative feedback loop. So if you have a mental health issues, it can lead to poor money choices mm-hmm. and poor being in a poor money situation can lead to mental health. So it's it's this negative downward spiral. And so I just want to start there and talk about that extreme end of that um, spectrum. If you, if you feel like you have unbearable stress from finances, I think the best thing that you should do is to speak to a financial counsellor. I think if you just Google Financial Counselling Australia, it'll come up. But mm-hmm. we're very lucky that we have free counselling in Australia and from all reports, it's it's really, really good. They're, they're extensively trained and they help you through your entire situation. So they go through everything with you to help you come up with a plan for your situation. Oh, great. So I think that is a really good step if you're in that, that crisis mm-hmm. point. Um, for everyone else, whether you're stressed about money or not, I run through a, a bit of a framework uh, in my business. And I mentioned it already, but to start with, I always dive down into their why, the client's why, and you can do that at home. It's it's really simple process, but it's basically sitting down, working out why you're doing what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve and what your goals and your visions are and what your rich life looks like. So the things that you love, like we mentioned before, for us, food is one of those things. Um So that's step one is to really sit down, understand your why and understand what your rich life looks like. And that's not a rich life when you're 60, it's rich life now. What can you do now that is what you enjoy doing? So that's step one. Step two is to review your expenses. Download your bank statement for the last couple of months and work out what you're expending on and where where that money is going to. So you can work out how much your rent's costing, how much your bills are costing, how much your food's costing, petrol, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It sounds painful, but it's not too bad and you don't have to consistently do it. Now, this is where a little star comes in. Um, I know I keep me- mentioning it, but everyone is different. So you just need to work out what works for you. And some people love a budget, some people not so much. But this is almost like a budget in reverse. You're just working out what you're spending on, 
Um, and the beautiful thing about reviewing your expenses is you'll always see the things that you didn't know you'd spent money on. So, you know, that old. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have so many subscriptions. Old streaming subscriptions. Services. Yeah. Oh, and gosh. I just had one just the other day because we just sat down and did ours. And I had an Amazon Prime subscription. I have no idea how I got it. Obviously, <laughs> clicked the wrong button awesome. after a purchase. And it wasn't much. It's was six bucks a month. But, um, I could cancel that then. So yeah. re- review your expenses and and it's a really good way to just sit down and be like, and after you've done, you'll know your why, you'll know what you can turn up and what you can turn down. So it's a good time to do it. Um, I mentioned the guide before. It's it's what it's a really good starting point and everyone's different. Um, but 50 to 60% is is rent and living expenses. 20% is your fund money. 10% investments and 10, 10% savings. For each of these things, as well as your emergency account and anything that you've got in particular, whether you're saving for a wedding or a holiday, or whatever it is, I would recommend opening up a bank account because they're just so easy to open up these days. You can log into an app and open a bank account in a matter of seconds. Um, and then it's really cool that you can call it whatever you like. So I, I like to like... <laughs> Make it fun. Make it fun to you, whatever you call it, like savings, wavings, whatever it is. <laughs> Come up with something and then um, automate as much of that plan as you can. So when your money, your wage hits the bank, your 10% here, 10% there, 20% there, 50% there, all gets done automatically. It's just out of mind, out of sight. You don't have to be consistently looking at it. Um, we've mentioned it before, but if you're in debt, it's okay. You don't need to feel all that shame, but you really need to focus on getting rid of it because it's just holding you back. And there's no like one way approach, but I just recommend putting so much focus into getting rid of that debt so you can run the marathon without the flippers and the the welding goggles because it is the number one thing that will change your life. So I would be hustling. I would ask for help, reach out to your family or your friends or someone who who potentially could help you. Um, go and negotiate your rates, consolidate where possible. Don't ignore it like you might have done previously. Mm. Um, and there's two techniques that they recommend in the financial world to to get rid of your debts. There's a snowball and an avalanche. Um, if, if it's something that you want to look into, I'd Google those two things and see which one works for you. But work on getting rid of, rid of that debt. You need to get rid of that break. Um, and a big part of that potentially, is to look at the invisible money script that might have gotten you into debt in the first place. Because if you don't, then there's a big chance that potentially you'll get back into debt once you're out. Mm -hmm. So debt's out of the way. Next would be to have your emergency fund. Start working on that. You don't have to do it all at once, but work on a number that works good for you. Most people recommend three months. And then, yes, the investing part. That's one thing that a lot of people have issues with the savings feels okay but a lot of people have a lot of fear around investing as well and so that's maybe again another time for another podcast but there's just so much benefit out of investing for the long term and investing safely and boringly and wisely Um, but it just will seriously put your trajectory of financial freedom so much further down the track um, if you don't if you don't do it so Yes, so that, that would be my steps. I'll just quickly summarize that because I spoke a lot. I felt like I spoke a lot anyway. But That's fine. And I think we can also, I think there's so much wisdom and juiciness in there that I think we could put that in the show notes and that can mm, even go out um, with the blog as well. Awesome. 
Right. So you don't want to run over it. I'll edit this bit out. Well, yeah, just quickly, it was review your expenses, get rid of debt, emergency fund and save and invest. Love it. Good way to sum it up. (laughs) And this is all of those tips are so good for the individual listening who's looking to build their financial literacy. Um, But such great tips for us to be as a leader when we know that our staff are are, are suffering Mm. to be able to offer to to those staff members, because that really shows our staff that you care about their well-being as well. Yeah, definitely. I think putting my lifeline hat on here, I think the best thing that leaders do and can do is is to be vulnerable. Like you, mm. that's why you're a leader. You need to lead. So be vulnerable, share your journey, um, talk about it as if it's normal, like create a space where it is safe to talk about all of these things, our, our feelings, yes, our emotions, build a connection. our money. Yeah. yeah, there's just so much power in vulnerability. Like I, just, I yeah, I can't say it enough. I think that was my biggest learning piece at Lifeline was that I'd constantly sit on the phone and do all these things to better health, but it took me a long time to actually um, share my own journey and be vulnerable to others, and that's where the true power is. So, Yeah, and, I mean, part of a mental health first aid conversation is um, supporting supporting the person that you're um, uh, having the conversation with to be able to problem solve and mm. um just I, I, you know, offering that support with who was it? The Financial Counselling Australia is a good first avenue, mm. and then sort of mentioning some of those strategies is something that I'd suggest that we we try if we're ever faced with an experience of chatting to a staff member about their financial concerns. Yeah, and that that mental health first aid, you know, that whole avenue is about having to dig through those threads because mm-hmm. they're not just. Most of the time, they're not going to come to you and say, "I've got, mm. I've got this problem. I've got this huge debt. Or I've got these financial issues." As a leader, we have to dig in and and filter through and and pull those threads to get the stories and and uncover what's going really going on. Yes, exactly. It's not always what we think it is. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, just a, a couple of last questions before we wrap up. But really quickly, what would you like to see make its way into the school curriculum to support Ooh. financial literacy and well-being for our students? I feel like this question's based off one of my Instagram posts as well. <laughs> um, what would I like to see added in? I would actually like to see a lot of things taken out of the curriculum. I think we need to take the pizza approach of less is more. Mm. and like seriously get in there and work out how much of the current cu- curriculum can we strip back. Yeah, I think everybody listening to this is nodding. <laughs> mm. Well, I'm I'm external to this, so I understand mm. the irony, so please mm. pull me up on anything <laughs> if you're not finding it. But I just think if we c- continue to increase teachers' workloads, then we're going to crush their mental health. And from what I'm hearing from um, friends and family in the industry, that's maybe already happening. Is that right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's only going to transfer. We're leaving in droves. It's only going to transfer to the kids. That stress and that workload is 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 not a good environment. Um, and the other thing is, it feels like teachers are constantly walking around on eggshells because if something does happen against the teacher, they really have to prove themselves um, innocent. You know, it's the, it's the opposite of what it should be. So they're constantly walking around on eggshells every month. It seems like there's a new thing that you're not allowed to say or do, or you know, there's all these new things. Um. Yeah, uh, my question to be to you would be: Do you think like teachers are happy and healthy, and is it a good environment at the moment with kids now? 
Well, I just think it's way too overcrowded. And the thing mm. is, is that we don't have any of the time to build the connections, like what you're saying before, and and yeah. and open up avenues to be vulnerable and find out what's actually happening for students. Yeah. But you know, our our curriculum is so overcrowded, and we don't often get the opportunity to teach and talk to our students from from even primary school right through yeah. on money and saving and and what to experience in the big wide world and these and you know even doing a tax return mm. these things are really important and are life skills yeah. um that that of course because we're trying to cover off on a thousand other things we never get to yeah if it's, we knew, it's, knew these skills from a young age um, and if we didn't have role modeling at home, we're at least learning it in school, we'd be um, we'd be much better off, particularly, as we said, if this is one of the leading factors that is influencing our well-being, that's something mm. that needs to be attacked <laughs> and addressed yes. early on. Yeah, I think that's beautifully said, mm. better than I could say. But yeah, it needs <laughs> to be stripped back to its bare bones. Teachers need to be put at the top. That That's the number one thing for me is teacher well-being needs to be number one. Mm followed by student well-being, obviously next, but it has to flow down that way because if the teachers aren't, aren't doing well, then the students are going to struggle. And then we add in the, the practical life skills, like maybe get rid of a few of the really old, you know, unhelpful skills that we learn at school <laughs> and get in some practical life skills like you mentioned, the, the right. practical financial things, um, the goal setting, the meditation, the mindset, the beliefs, all those sorts of things, uh, skills that can be carried into all of those pillars of health that you mentioned, all eight pillars Absolutely. of health. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yes, I know from one of my memes that some of this stuff is being taught in the schools, but like like we've both pointed out, I think it needs a, it needs some sort of an overhaul. And there are school systems that are, seem to be working better than others. So I think maybe the the government run state schools could could maybe look at what a lot of things that maybe were once considered woo are no longer. They're, they're now in the research and the studies. Um, they could I don't start. think finances is woo though, but I I know what you're no. saying around the mindset yeah. work behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, and just that student led learning and those sorts of things like that. Mm. So, and mm. I think you're um you're going to be able to answer my next question well because you've been talking about it throughout the whole episode. <laughs> is we see a number of quotes circulating on social media, so showcasing something thought provoking or inspiring from thought leaders across the globe and throughout time. If a quote from you, John Moses, was circulating on the topic of health, well-being, or leadership, what would it say? <laughs> I'm definitely not a wordsmith. Um, <laughs> it would be along the lines of there are very few problems that are not best solved by putting you at the top of the priority list. It's a good one. It's a good one, and I say it because it's it's something that I constantly come up with um, in my own life where I'm prone to looking after everyone but ignoring myself. But mm. I think when you really look into it, you 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 can't truly look after the people around you unless you are looked after first. Mm, that comes with boundaries. It's the, yes. it, it's the you know, it, it's a quote circulating from Hattie and teachers listening will know who Hattie is, is that, yes, um, our students begin to suffer because we as teachers aren't looking after ourselves and we become too stressed out or worn out to be able to tend to the learning and the well-being of the students. And mm. our job is to guide them and is to provide them with the opportunity. And that doesn't mean that we, you know, they come, that sounds like they come first, but actually we need to tend to ourselves first. Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, I think I think back to sorry, I know we're running a little bit over, but I think back to the teacher that shaped me the most. Um, and it was an English teacher I had in the middle of high school. And he had created almost a sanctuary in his in his um classroom. And going off what I said before, like he probably would really struggle today because a lot of the stuff maybe is no longer allowed, you know, like you have to be so careful now. But he would he had this sanctuary where you could come in. He was always really calm, um, but he was really, really true and honest. And he would just ask really good questions of people. He would treat everyone equally. He would swear and cuss. And he used to point out that the news was just absolute bullshit and all this stuff like this. Like, um, and, but Sounds I like my about, kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, he was an amazing teacher. But I'd think about how he imparted his um his wisdom and how he shaped myself and the people around me but it was it was purely because he was leading by example he had this really calm nature he was really open and honest he was vulnerable um if he noticed something was off he would pull the student aside and he he was just really really attuned with the people around yeah. him and i just don't think we've created an environment for those guys to shine through um maybe again you're a lot closer than this than me but yeah, I, I just don't think people like that can can really survive in the current setup. Yes, it, it's becoming increasingly more challenging, but something that I advocate for, of course, is valuing everyone for who they are and their own unique strengths mm. um, and also value the power of that multiple skills uh, and strengths and personalities brings. We can't all be the same. Uh, because then we won't get that diversity of opinions and views and, you know, to be challenged to see things from another angle. It's it's really important. Uh, mm. We didn't we didn't come this far as a society all being the same. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think what you're doing is such good work. It's so needed. Oh, thanks so much. <laughs> so my last question is this podcast is aptly titled Well-Led Schools, which is a play on word to to reflect those schools who lead with well-being in mind. What is one thing you think schools can do to prioritise well-being that would make the biggest difference in their uh, school? Uh, good question again. I think we might have covered it a little bit, but well-led, well-led Ed. Um, one thing that they can do to prioritize well-being, I, I think I've mentioned it before, is just putting the teacher's well-being at the top. Mm. Um, I think currently, from my experience, and I finished school in 2008, so maybe a lot has changed since then, but the focus in my year 11 and year 12 was on grades. Yeah, And I remember every Wednesday we had a study period and the teacher would get up every single week and say, if you're not studying... 12 hours a week every week then you're going to fail and you won't get a good job and you're going to you know end up homeless all this like basically injecting anxiety into every one of our veins but i think that was because the focus was on grades whereas if you can focus on teacher well-being and student well-being then every study that you look at shows in business when the staff well-being mm -hmm. increases sales increase and the bottom line increases everything increases. So I think yeah. teacher well-being at the top is the answer to that question. That's right. And, you know, the saying that I push around schools is people first, then pedagogy. And, you know, you're not in education 
um, John, but pedagogy is like, you know, our teaching practice, our curriculum, um, okay. our way of doing things. And um, or we at least do them concurrently at the same time. So teachers don't or people don't come after the the education side of things. They need to mm. come first. We work in an industry full of people, so it makes sense. Definitely. All right. Thanks, John. If any listeners are keen to connect with you, where can they find you? Head over to my Instagram page. There's, I always try and leave as much knowledge out there as possible, um, which is JM underscore investments underscore advisory. And from there, you'll be able to find my website and my contact details and all that sort of thing. So I'd love, love to chat. The first conversation is always a freebie um, and we can dive into all the things that we spoke about today. Love it. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom today, John. I've really enjoyed it. And it's been lots of food for thought for me as well with my limiting beliefs around my money mindsets. Mm, I know the next topic mm. for us. <laughs> Thanks so much, John. Have a great end of your week. Thank you so much, Adri. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in again today. If you're keen to get on top of your overall well-being, I recently launched a self-paced online course, A Roadmap to Better Wellbeing, which takes participants on a journey of understanding stress from a multidimensional perspective that will guide them through creating their own pathway to well-being, all formalized within a well-being action plan. Throughout each of the really short and easy to digest modules, you'll find videos, short activities and resources with simple, easy to implement strategies that you can incorporate into your personal and professional life, as well as ideas to share and practice with students. Learn more and register today at adriannehornby.com.au forward slash wellbeing hyphen course, or check out the show notes for quick access today. Thanks so much for listening to Well-Led Schools. I look forward to connecting with you at adriannehornby.com.au. Here you can get in contact with me, learn more about my approach and join my mailing list. I'm Adrienne Hornby. Thanks again for your time and stay well.